Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear DC Benny. We live in an Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn. Everybody thinks I'm Puerto Rican, you know, except, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans think I'm a cop. So that and more. But before that, if the audio sounds a little different on the hosting this week, it's because this is the second time in our almost 10 years that I've had to do the hosting of the episode in bed. <laughs> I have been so, so very sick that I'm, I'm hosting in a prone position with Donkey by my side, at least. But the show must go on because, oh my gosh, that first week that the Risk book has been out is now past, and what a week that was. The book release party at Caveat in New York City was electric. We had four of the storytellers who are featured in the book read from the book. People were just so excited. And then we went to Boston. We we did our first book reading and book signing at the Harvard bookstore. We were worried because we've never done that before. So we were like, well, let's hope someone shows up. The place was packed. And it was packed with lots of people who had never heard the podcast. They were just curious and they were applauding at the end. There was a standing ovation. I mean, it was a big deal. And then the next night, we did a Risk show in Boston. Fabulous as well. So listen, keep posting photos on social media with the book and use the hashtag RiskBook. Also, call your libraries and indie bookstores and ask them to order it. Leave reviews for the book on Amazon especially, but also Goodreads, Target, or wherever you can review books. It's that Amazon number that the industry pays closest attention to. So right now we've got almost 50 reviews on Amazon, but if we could get that to 100 by the 1st of August, that would do a lot to help the book become popular. Don't forget there's an audiobook version and an ebook version. You can still find everything at theriskbook.com, but now you can also find it most places books are sold and the reviews are coming in. People have got the book now and they're saying they 
absolutely love it. It's everything you would expect out of Risk. Funny, terrifying, beautiful, heartbreaking. It's just loaded with amazing stories from some famous people, some people you've never heard of, some people who have never been on the podcast before, and then some of the greatest stories that have been on the podcast. We're so proud that it's it, it's doing well, folks. It is doing well. Also, are you looking to spice things up in the bedroom? Well, right at this very moment, I am not. <laughs> Have you been fantasizing about surprising your lover with an adventurous new toy or an adult movie? Here's an offer you won't be able to resist. Go to adamandeve.com. For a limited time, you'll get 50% off just about any item. And that's not all. When you select one item at 50% off, you'll also receive a free sex swing. Hang your sex swing on your door and hang on tight. And then to top it all off, they'll even throw in free shipping on your entire order. They're not kidding. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special offer. 50% off one item when you type RISK for the offer code upon checkout. When you do, you'll get a free sex swing and free shipping. Just use the offer code RISK at adamandeve.com. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Cannonball Adderley behind me now. Oof, I'll tell you something. Like I explained in the opening announcement, I am actually laying in my bed right now. That's why things sound a little different. I am currently healing from several days of... Oof, dramatic sickness. I have been concerned about these upcoming couple of months of touring that we're doing for the Risk book because there's so much travel and so many shows and book signings and just so much going on that I was a little worried about staying healthy and not burning out from it. Well, in the very first week of it all, I ended up in the emergency room. What happened was we did that incredible Harvard Bookstore book signing and book reading, where it was packed and a huge hit. And then that night afterwards, JC and I went out for dinner. Now, at about three o'clock in the morning that night, I woke up to really searing pain in my abdomen, like these sharp cramps that felt like, you know, the alien and alien was in my stomach. So I couldn't sleep that night. Well, it went on throughout the day. Now, we did have an incredible risk show the next night. <laughs> I was hiding the whole time that I was in pain, uh, you know, because the show must go on. But I didn't sleep a wink that night 
either. So not only am I having all this pain, but I'm unable to get any rest. The train ride from Boston to New York was just a marathon. I mean, I kept having to jump up and run to the bathroom in the train and vomit. Now, JC took me to urgent care once we got to Penn Station, and the doctor there said, oh, it's probably just a stomach flu. You just have to wait it out. But about six or seven hours later, the pain was so intense. And I've had stomach flus before, and this was just like, no, I can't, I can't even sit still. I'm having to like writhe around. Uh, you know, so I, I decided I was going to take an Uber to the emergency room in the pouring, pouring rain late that night. I had to concentrate on not vomiting the entire Uber ride over there. And sure enough, they said, oh, your urine's fine. All your blood work is fine. This is probably just a stomach flu. You just have to ride it out. I took an Uber home, once again concentrating for almost a half hour on do not throw up, do not throw up, do not throw up. When I finally got home, I realized my keys had fallen out of my pants in the Uber and I was locked out of my house at 1.30 in the morning in the pouring rain. Then I had a brilliant idea. My friend who watches Donkey every time I'm out of town has a pair of my keys and he was working in Manhattan that night. So I called an Uber and had the Uber driver go to him and bring my keys to me. So a half hour later at like two in the morning, I finally got a key. I put it in the keyhole, I turn it and it just breaks as if it's made out of butter right in the keyhole. That's when all the weakness and exhaustion, all the desperate desire for some rest just went out the window and I just kicked and kicked and kicked my door till I broke in. Donkey was positively traumatized and I think the people who live in my building think I'm insane. <laughs> anyway... I am finally feeling like I'm over the hump. I'm still incredibly weak, still have a stomach ache, but not one that keeps me from sleeping. And so, dear God, let's hope it, over the next couple of days I heal enough to get on a plane again for the next leg of the tour in two days. Now, we are calling this week's episode Best Laid Plans. We have one very funny story. We have one really inspiring story. And we have one pretty devastating story that all kind of fit that theme. We're going to, in a little bit, hear from Rhea Spencer. But before that, DC Benny is finally back on the show. Oh my god, this is so much fun. This was recorded at a live risk show at Caveat in New York City. If you like this story, you should definitely check out DC's album, Live at the Fat Black. 10 Funny Stories, and this one he just calls The Cruise Ship Story. All right. Nice to be here, everybody, on the Lower East Side, right? I'm a comedian. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, uh, I've been a comedian for, uh, over 30 years, and, uh, this story is about a cruise ship, 
Um, I've avoided doing cruise ships, uh, mainly because as a performer, as a comedian in a club or in this kind of environment, you can say whatever you want to say. On a cruise ship, if you offend anybody and they complain about it, you get helicoptered to fuck off the ship. Um, and my act is a very New York act. You know, I'm a Jewish comedian married to a black woman with a PhD who looks like an Indian. We live in an Italian neighborhood in Brooklyn. Everybody thinks I'm Puerto Rican, you know, except, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans think I'm a cop. So, you know, someone's gonna get offended. Um, so I've avoided uh, doing cruise ships. But, uh, you know, it, I was like, all right, I gotta try this. I gotta lean into the fear. I gotta try and do a cruise ship or whatever. So the process was, you audition. There's a theater in Miami. And um, this guy puts together a showcase of performers. And there's an audience. And interspersed in that audience are the cruise ship directors, the bookers. So the guy's, I'm talking to the guy about it. And he's selling me hard on the show. You know, he's like, you're gonna kill. This, this crowd is fire. This crowd is hot. This crowd is fire. I know you. I know what you, you're going to kill. It's fire. He keeps saying it over and over again. So I get there. He's totally misrepresented this crowd. I mean, it's like 500 old Jews complaining. It's hot. Where, where's the fire exit? You know, it's like, the, you know, there's a, a walker gets lodged in, uh, <laughs> in a row of seats. You know, it takes 20 minutes to extract it. Somebody's complaining. Turkey's low salt. Yeah, it's just like... It's, uh, anyway, so, and I'm the only comedian on the showcase. There's myself, uh, there's a flamenco dancer, there's a boy band, uh, there's a piano player, and there's one of those Statue of Liberty people that just stands there for 20 minutes and does that, you know, they're painted silver. So it's an eclectic uh, uh, assembly. And, and one by one, these people go on and they're performing and, 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 and they're bombing. You know, the, the crowd hates them. The crowd's it's belligerent. I don't, I've never seen anything like it. It's old belligerent people. They're heckling. You know, they're like, when the, sta uh, the Statue of Liberty person goes on, they're like, yeah, do something. You know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the flamenco lady goes on. They're like, speak up. I can't, what is she saying? I can't, you know, she's a dancer. She's not fucking saying anything. She dances. You know, one by one, they're bombing. Finally, the, uh, the piano player goes on, sings songs in Yiddish, fucking annihilates this room. The whole place is like, yeah, it'll deedle, deedle, yeah, it'll deedle, deedle. It's like yarmulkes, matzo bits flying. He gets off stage, a lady stands up, and it's like, I got a daughter in Queens single, and hands him a, like a number. You know, I mean, this is how this guy has killed. You know, I got to follow this guy. It's like following Springsteen in Jersey, you know, it's, and, and, and I'm. So the uh, cruise ship director guy who put this thing together, he comes up to me, he's like, uh, do you have any material about being Jewish? Because that's all they're going to respond to if you don't. And I'm like, you know, I got a, I don't really have a lot. I mean, I have one joke I do in the clubs. I wasn't really planning on doing it, but I could. And he's like, well, what's that? And I'm like, eh, you know, I'm Jewish. I got a German shepherd. That's a bad combination, you know, because he's always looking at me like he's thinking about the good old days, you know. He <laughs> He doesn't bark, he just stands by the door when people walk by, there are your papers, show me your papers. You know, we never, we never got him fixed, so he humps everything in the apartment, including my wife's leg. He always looks at me while he's doing it, like, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, you know, there is your Messiah now. Anyway, this joke kills in the clubs, right? It kills. And this guy's like, no, no, no. It's like, there's survivors in the audience, no. So, it would have been a strategic error to do that night, you know? 
is the point. So I don't do it. I don't do it. Uh, I, I don't even remember what I do. I don't remember. I did some other, uh, some other stuff, and uh, it, it was all right. And I, I booked one cruise ship out of it. And I won't mention the name of the cruise line, but it's the budget uh, cruise. We'll call it Circus Cruises. Uh, it's, basically a, it's basically a floating fucking Denny's is what it is, right? So uh, you've seen the commercials. So I got to be on there eight days, all right? And I'm not nautical, you know? I, I got a lot of anxiety about being on the boat eight days. I've, you know, I've snorkeled once or twice for like an hour, you know, when there was a dude that could pull you out and, you know, that kind of shit. So I'm like, ah. and I'm thinking of all the things that could go wrong, you know? I'm thinking of all the things, and I'm like, ah, I could get seasick, I could get seasick. That would impact, because you have to do shows every night, and, and uh, you gotta, they have to be different material. And I'm like, I get seasick. So I look online, it says, eat green apples eat green apples. So I, I get like a bag of green apples and I'm just pounding green apples every day before I go. But you're supposed to eat it while you're actually on the ship, not before. So of course the day I leave, I get crazy explosive diarrhea, right? It's just, I can't stop shit, you know? So that's, that's always helpful when you're traveling, you have anxiety. Fly to the uh, George Bush airport, okay? I don't know if you've been to the George Bush airport. From there, we're gonna go to Mexico, the cruises to Mexico. I don't know if you've been there, there's a giant statue of George Bush running with a blazer over his shoulder, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting political. I mean, I lean a little to the left, but that's scoliosis. And, you know, so I'm in the airport and it's, uh, it's all people from Texas that are going on this cruise. So it's exclusively people, this is large, large people, you know, just, you know, <laughs> just large people. Everybody's on a scooter, like they choose to scoot though. You know, it's like, you know, in a sweatsuit, never did a fucking sit up, like, where's the buffet? Where's the buffet? You know, it's just, you're just watching crowds of gangs of people on scooters, just scooting onto the ship. It's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Like, they, they could walk, but they choose to scoot, you know? <laughs> I've never seen such just like helplessness with the fucking sweatsuit and the scooting. So uh, the thing that distinguishes circus cruises from any other cruise line is any other cruise line as a performer, you get a cabin amongst the passengers. Circus cruises, because it's budget cruise line, you bunk with the crew. So you go, <laughs> you go in through a special door, the crew goes in, so I, I gotta fill out a form. You know, I'm watching all the scooter people go in one door and I'm gonna go in the other. Fill out a form, have, the first thing they hit you with a form, have you had diarrhea in the past month? So, you know, I gotta lie, you know, so now I got secret diarrhea uh, on, the, on the ship. <laughs> uh, and I get shown to my, to my cabin, my cab, I'm 6'4", uh, my head touches the ceiling in the cabin, this thing is tiny. And, you know, if you wanna go to the bathroom, you gotta put one leg in the shower, there's no feng shui, any of that shit. You know, it's horrible. It's just the most claustrophobic, uh. So I'm like, let me go look around and sort of get the lay of the land. The other thing about circus cruises is that uh, the passengers get uh, one type of food, but the crew gets the crew food. So the crew is predominantly Indian and Filipino, and they rotate every week. So the, uh, I just missed Filipino week, so it was Indian week. So. <laughs> If you have secret diarrhea, that's not gonna be your cuisine of choice, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, oh, wow. You know, let me go check out uh, the, uh, the area that we eat, the, the crew room. And you know, the chef is there, the cook. And I'm trying to look, identify something that's gonna be kind of palatable, that's not gonna set off any, you know, stuff. 
And I'm, so I'm asking this guy, and the guy doesn't like me off the bat. You know, it's just to me, it's obvious because I'm like, uh, excuse me, sir. You know, what? Uh, excuse me, uh, what? Uh, what is non? Non? You don't know non. Non is like a bread, but not is you know non. I mean, is it, is it spicy? Is it mild? Is mild, but could be spicy. You know, depend. It's a non. It never have. You know. Why they call it non? You wait too long, non left. So this guy can't stand me, right? I go back to my cabin. The, the other thing about the cabin, there's a there's a little uh, speaker in there. And you hear the captain making announcements constantly, constantly. And for some reason, these cruise ship captains are always Italian, from Italy, you know, not from Brooklyn, they're always from Italy. And so you get these crazy announcers supposed to calm everybody down or whatever. They just don't make any sense because it's got the broken English. Hey, welcome to the ship. Uh, it's going to be nice, the voyage. We're going to go water is blue this side more water green this with the fish nice you know listen to this guy this guy's this guy's high you know what the hell's going on with this ship so i start walking around trying to see if i can make a friend or something like that you know trying to see if i and i see the piano player the piano player from the showcase that that killed before me he's on he's booked on the same ship so i'm like oh I'm like, what are you doing? I thought I was neurotic. This guy's on a whole different level, right? This guy's like, what am I doing? What am I doing? He's like, do you know how they set up my piano? They put a ping pong table next to my piano. Every time I got to try to play the piano, people are playing ping pong by my piano. As an artist, it's, it's, it's the worst situation. I feel, and I'm like, all right, dude, we're gonna get some breakfast, you know, because you're stressing me out. We'll catch some breakfast. That's kind of my blow off to, you know, we'll get breakfast, right? So. That night I do my first show and it goes horribly. Uh, I come out and I say, uh, you know, it's all people from Texas and a, you know, strategic era again. I'm like, hey, I'm from New York. Somebody immediately shouts out, pussy. And I can't respond. You know, I can't be like, hey, I'll kick over that meth lab behind your trailer and, you know, punch your grandma on the remaining tooth or, you know, some shit I would normally say in a club. I can't respond. I have to let it go. So. <laughs> It's stressful, it's very stressful. So the next day I see the piano player, I'm like, I'll catch up, we're gonna grab breakfast, you know? <laughs> I gotta focus, I gotta get on my game here. I can't, I can't have that again. And that night, another bad show. So every, every night I'm having these, and every day I see the piano player. And finally, uh, I think it's the fifth day I wake up, there's a note under the door. Uh, meet me for breakfast, I got something to tell you. And sign the piano player, right? So I'm like, all right. Let me meet this guy for breakfast already and get him off my back, right? So I go meet him for breakfast, and I sit there and waiting about 45 minutes. This dude doesn't show up, you know, about an hour. Guy still doesn't show up. I'm sitting there, and I'm looking out one of the windows, the, uh, the portholes, I think they're the portal, uh, nautical terminology, and I see a helicopter take off from the ship. And I'm like, huh. And, you know, I don't make the connection, right? So I'm like, it's a helicopter. So I ask one of the... Um, I asked one of the Filipino guys, I'm like, anybody seen the piano player who's supposed to meet for breakfast? They're like, oh, you didn't hear what happened? I'm like, no, what happened? They're like, every day, the passengers are complaining that they want to play ping pong, but the paddles are missing. So we go to the stock room, we get more paddles, we put them out, next morning, the paddles are gone again. So it's been like, <laughs> we go to the stock room, five days in, we got no more paddles. All the paddles are gone. We look on the security camera in the middle of the night, we see the piano player sneak out, grab the paddles, and throw them overboard. So he got, he got the helicopter, right? <laughs> so I've never felt so alone after that. You know, I've never felt so alone. <laughs> 
this guy had his artistic integrity and he, you know, and now he's gone. And it's just me on the ship. So we got about two days left. We got about two days left. I wake up, it's a Saturday, and I, I think that, ni I, that night is a really big show, and I'm like, I, I'm getting it all together. I wake up to this announcement from the captain. It's a very it's a strange announcement. It's like, hey, welcome to the show. Hey, we're looking for this lady, Sandra Johnson. Sandra Johnson, please come to the front of the ship. We have to talk. <laughs> right, so, okay. I go back to sleep, right? Ten minutes later, the voice again. Like, what the? This guy, hey, welcome. So we make an announcement for the Sandra Johnson, please coming to the front of the ship. She don't coming. Anybody see Sandra? Tell her, talk to her, tell her, come to the front of the ship. We're just gonna. So like, another ten minutes goes by, right? Nothing. Another announcement. Eh, okay, so and and you could tell this guy's getting mad, but he's trying to hide it. You know, he's trying like a parent. You know, it's like, uh, Sandra Johnson, uh, you're not in trouble. Uh, <laughs> we just want to talk with you. It's no big deal. It's nothing. A small item on the menu. Just come to the front of the ship, you know. I go back to sleep. Ten minutes later, again, another announcement. And now he's, he can't even hide. He's like, okay, Sandra Johnson, we make announcement. You hear it. I know you hear it. And you don't come to the front of the ship. We know you're on the ship. We're going to find you. We're going to find you on the ship. We're gonna find you. Everybody, all passengers, go back to the cabin, stay in the cabin till we find this Sandra Johnson. So, 4,000 people, we all gotta go back to our cabins and stay in the cabins. We basically get locked in the cabins because this lady has disappeared. Well, about four hours later, I find out that the lady has fallen off the ship, right? That's what's happened, right? And I only know that because I, you know, I pop my head out of the door, I, I hear two of the crew members talking, and one of them's like, man, psh, the lady fell off the ship, and the other guy's like, oh, not again, and walks off, right? <laughs> so I go, I'm like, this is unbelievable. I go back to the cabin, the captain comes on, he's like, eh, so we're not gonna find Sandra Johnson. Uh, <laughs> uh, but tonight we have comedy show. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so you talk about the worst circumstances to do stand-up comedy, right? So all day, um, I'm like, what am I gonna do? Because they have it taped off. Uh, where the FBI has come on board the ship. They have it, a yellow tape where the lady has fallen off. Um, there are all these theories of what happened and rumors going around. Take, got drunk, took a selfie. You know, got into an argument. Someone said we got pushed. It's crazy. And uh, there's a woman walking around because it's Texas. There's a woman with a Bible like this is a voyage of the damned. Which that doesn't help any. You know, <laughs> that's just what you need. You know, a religious nut with. <laughs> so everybody's really freaked out. Plus, we've been, you know, four hours locked in the cabin. So that night, I get to the showroom. Ah, the cruise uh, director comes up, and they're like, uh, do not say anything about that lady that fell off the ship. <laughs> and I'm like, listen, listen, I'm a comedian. I have a job to do. We, uh, you know, everybody knows. It ain't a secret. You know, everybody knows what happened. We got locked in the cabins. This guy's making announcements. Nobody's gonna understand what the hell he's saying. I mean, is, I gotta, I gotta address. She, they're like, do not say anything about the lady that fell off the ship. I'm like, eh. you're, 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 you're not gonna get paid and all that. So I go up there and I, I, I don't know. I just do the captain for like a half hour. I'm like, hey, everybody. <laughs> so kind of an awkward voyage. Um, 
So, you know, the Johnson that you've been hearing about, the Johnson, it was my Johnson. I cannot find it. I look, I look, I look under my gut. There is my Johnson. And everybody's laughing. Captain's dick. You know, we're having a blast. (laughs) Everybody's toasting because people are drinking on that boat. I mean, I've never seen drinking like that before. You know, they're toasting the captain's dick. All of a sudden, it gets really, <laughs> it gets really quiet. You know, I don't know how I squoze a half hour of, of time out of that, but it gets really quiet. And I don't know if squoze is a word. And I look, <laughs> I look in the back, which you know what I'm talking about. And there's the captain in the back of the room, and he starts saying stuff to me. He's like, "Hey, who uh, who writes your joke, right?" And I'm like, "Hey, who's steering the ship, right?" And people are like, "Ooh, <laughs> ooh." <laughs> So I figure that's going to be it. It's not it. He's like, hey, maybe I'll do your act. I'm going to get big laughs bigger than you. And I'm like, maybe if I'm steering the boat, people don't fall the fuck off. Oh! (laughs) 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 The lights come on. The mic cuts off. I see the cruise director like doing this. You know, they fucking... But I learned something very important. I learned something very important about myself, about everything, is that, I, you know, I may never, ever uh, be comfortable on a cruise ship, but uh, I do love helicopter rides. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> Good night, everybody. I'm DC Benny. Yeah. Before this Sandra Johnson, please coming to the front of the ship. She don't coming. Anybody see Sandra? Tell her, talk to her, tell her, come to the front of the ship. We're just gonna. I'm like, I have the loudest friends. <laughs> okay. Um, so it is. Sunday night, it is my senior year of high school. I am sitting in my pastor's office and I'm feeling betrayed. Now, the Sunday night is because my Southern Baptist street cred is real. And I was at church for the second time that day for evening Bible class right before the evening service. I was in my pastor's office because he was really very much more like a surrogate grandfather to me. And when I felt like actually blowing off Bible class and hanging out and eating leftover donuts and talking about my life, I could hang out in his office while he was pretending that he was working on his evening sermon when he was actually watching the game. And I could talk during commercial. So, and the reason that I was there and I was feeling like so portrayed, it was all about what had happened with my counselor and a couple of my teachers earlier that week. So 
my guidance counselor, my teachers and stuff like that, I was from, uh, oddly enough, suburban St. Louis, um, in a kind of like a middle, middle class suburban neighborhood going to a pretty kind of standard public high school, the kind of place where, you know, they still taught like shop and home economics and there were no AP classes. And they would always have like those ridiculous motivational posters on the wall that were like excellent and dream and for whatever reason seem to always have like an eagle and that stupid monarch butterfly on it and so I'm sitting looking at the signs and I'm talking to my counselor and we're talking about college and I wasn't like school valedictorian or anything like that but I was still like a good student and a good kid and so I gave him my list that was composed exclusively of either Ivy Leagues or like top five schools in America And in my world, I think that that's totally legit. And I'm having this conversation and he starts looking at me as I'm talking and he's like, whoa. And I'm like, what do you mean, whoa? And he's going, well, see, here's the thing. Those schools, you gotta know somebody to get into those kinds of schools. Remember that they're like, extraordinarily selective and they're really looking for like valedictorians or straight A's or the absolute like, you know, best and the brightest. The people that wind up going to those kind of schools, they're folks that had gone to like a fancy boarding school or like a really, really elite private school and they're just not gonna look at kids from around here. And I was like, well, what the hell happened to like the eagle and the butterfly? (laughs) Like all this, be the best you can be, do the best you can do, that you've been drilling in my head for the last damn four years. So now I walk in and I'm like, okay, you're like, be your best, do your best. And I'm like, okay, I did my best. I want my best. I want the best. And now you're saying I can't do it? And so I'm getting more and more worked up and I'm saying all this to Rev and he's basically like cutting me off because the next bat is about to go up. And he's like, look, we walk by faith and not by sight. Whatever God has for you, it's gonna be yours and nobody can take it away. So I'm like, okay, girl, you know, I can regroup. I can do this, I can regroup. Because here's the thing. I already know where I'm going to college. Mind you, it's the fall and I have not applied to a college, but I already know where I'm going to college, which is what I told my father as I handed him the student perspective to let him know that I was going to Wellesley. And my dad was basically like, he's like, where the hell is Wellesley? And I'm like, and that was, and that was okay, because I was like, that was a legit question, because one thing my counselor was right about is like, you know, kids from where I was coming from, is like, you know, you really didn't leave the state. Like, maybe you went to exotic Illinois, but that was kind of it. And so talking about how I wanted to go to this, like, women's college like in New England somewhere where people were learning how to be like ambassadors and astronauts and writers like hell even the woman who wrote America the Beautiful went to school there it's like this is the thing I had these conversations with lots of different kinds of people and I'm like really excited I started talking to this group of women that um I'm just going to call like the saints. The saints are, are folks that are like part of like my broader church family and think like Dana Carvey, SNL, church lady, but like old Southern black. <laughs> so the old Southern black version of that woman is starting to give me things and they're like, oh, why would you want to go to college so far away? You know, you can get a perfectly fine education right here in Missouri. What's so special about everything that's happening over there? Do you think you're too good to go to schools in Missouri? And they gave me that up and down, slow glance that is historically reserved for people that are being uppity. (laughs) 
But for me, that was a very, very, very particular kind of insult because I was actually one of the few black kids going to that all-white suburban school in middle, middle America. And I had spent damn near my entire life juggling back and forth, being like, what do you say here? What do you say there? Pick this noun, pick that verb, show this part of yourself, hide this part of yourself so the black side is happy and the white side is happy and like everybody else gets to be comfortable and you pull yourself in to make sure you're never seen in that light. And it was exhausting, but I knew how to do it. And the idea that somebody would claim that I didn't and try to throw it back in my face was incredibly, incredibly insulting to me. But I'm gonna shake it off. So a little later on that spring, there is a tea for prospective Wellesley students. Yes, Wellesley still calls them teas. So I was so I was going to the Wellesley tea. It was everything that actually my guidance counselor had like been talking about so we get there and I am clearly on a very very different side of town I mean one of those places where they've got like wrought iron gates in front of the subdivision with the limestone like pillars on the sides and the actual line statues on top like one of those and I'm like going up these steps into this like colonial house with like columns and shit People had been saying, don't be nervous, don't be nervous. And so I finally like shook off some of the grown folks that were actually hanging out around us. And I got a chance to just like talk to some of like the other prospective students and some of the other current students. And it was awesome. Like we talked about like P-Funk and punk rock and about, you know, juxtaposing like what was happening in politics with like exposés and like Rolling Stone magazine. And we all were talking about how it was so interesting to be around all these different people who, you know, knew that high school kind of sucked and we were ready to get out of there. And all the drama that was associated with having to like play kind of small and sometimes pretend that you didn't know the answer and stop raising your hand and what it is that that needed to feel like. And for the first time, I was having a conversation with people who understood how important it was to create a place where girls could just be really fucking smart with no judgment, with no shame, with no hiding, just be. And I walked out of there not, I'm not only not intimidated, but like doubling down because I knew I wanted it, but I had not realized how much I needed it. It's admission season in the spring. Everybody's waiting on their acceptance letters. And like every day, we're all like running to the mailbox trying to like Vulcan mind mail that thing. Like, please, Jesus, give me the thick envelope. I need the thick one, not the skinny one. And, and we go through, and it's weeks and weeks and weeks where we're waiting for all those different letters. And finally, all my letters came in, and I got the chance to go back to my guidance counselor and basically be like, unlike all them children over there that you're still counseling, I did get in everywhere I applied. Just saying. So, <laughs> so it's all good in my hut, right? So I'm there. Now that this is something that's going to be a reality, now there's like a brand new conversation that's coming my way. Because at this point, I had learned that no matter what you're doing in your life, somebody is going to have something to say. But this one, 
the tone was different. It was real talk. Because you see, Wellesley, outside of Boston, and even though it was in the suburbs, still basically a lot of people coming from that city, coming from Boston. And Boston has a very complicated racial history. Like, they didn't even start desegregating their schools until like the middle of the 1970s. And even though the violence had stopped, because there was actually violence, like in the 70s, like bricks thrown, slurs said, people got jumped, folks got hurt kind of violence that was actually going on. While the violence may have stopped, the politics kept going well into the 80s, and there had not been that much time. And you gotta understand, like, you know, in my world, as the saints are looking at me, and people are having these conversations, like in my community, like, my mother went to Little Rock Central, my aunt was a freedom rider. All the saints around me got very, very similar stories. Like, these are the kind of people that, like, know for a fact that beliefs don't change just because laws do, and never had the privilege of believing that school was 100% safe 100% of the time. This question about will I be safe is a real one, especially when you consider that I'm rolling the dice on this and I'm making this happen, but I've never actually been to Boston, let alone Wellesley, neither have anybody I know, and I am making this whole decision, hoping for the best, sight unseen. My parents, God love them. <laughs> My parents, though, they're helping me dodge the voices, helping me dodge the naysayers, and they're, they're keep going, you know, and they're doing like the parent things, and they're like, they're filling out the forms, and we're having the conversations, and I knew something was wrong when my parents came home, and they called me upstairs to talk to them in the living room, as opposed to like just hanging out with me downstairs in the den. And I got upstairs, and have you ever just seen people that are like too composed? Like they've gathered themselves? As I sat there, it turns out that my parents had actually been having conversations with a financial advisor. And they weren't sure that they were actually gonna be able to do it. And I am ready <laughs> to have like a Marsha Brady style fit. Like, are you shitting me with this? You have got to be kidding. And as I'm ready to well up, I look at my father's face and his eyes are starting to weld and I instantly choke it back. My father was a 6'2 Vietnam veteran. He starched his handkerchiefs. He starched his pajamas. <laughs> he had total kidney failure since I was eight years old. I had seen him in the hospital for months at a time. I'd seen his disappointment at failed transplant attempts. I had seen and had those kind of goodbye conversations in and out of ICU more than once, but he made it, and he made it with nary a complaint, and in all of that time, I had never seen that man get anywhere near crying. But as he was having that conversation and had to look his baby girl in the face and say he didn't think he'd be able to do it, I saw his eyes well and I dropped it in that instance because there was nothing in this world that I would ever ask for that would make that man cry. And I remember 
going upstairs and like going to my room and just having this moment and like understanding what heartbreak feels like. Like it feels like a form of gravity that manifests and sinks inside you that like pulls your shoulders in and pulls your stomach as you want to bend and lays there and doesn't let you move. And there was nothing I can do about it except understand that with all the baggage, with all the conversations, with all the naysayers, some things were just very, very real and completely beyond my control. As days wore on and my parents were trying to figure out with me what was gonna happen, what I was gonna do, because this had been my plan. I was rolling the dice on all of this and just this. I don't have an option B. And then my mom, in the midst of this, reminds me that I really should call the recruiter back, the alum who had hosted the tea, who was so kind to me during this entire period. My mother has always been one with impeccable manners and it was just the right thing to do. And I am dreading this call. I am dreading it because it's like salt in a wound. I am dreading this call. And I get lucky because I call her house and she's out of town. <laughs> and I get her housekeeper. And so I can leave this whole message with the housekeepers, like the thank yous and the I'm sorry's, like the this, that, and the next things. And I can say it and I can choke it out and I don't have to talk to her so I know I'm not going to break down. I step away from that call. Some time passes. Not a lot of time, like maybe like we, we could have something like that. And I happen to be home alone, moribund. <laughs> and the phone rings. And so I go and I pick up the phone. And it's that woman, my hostess, my Wellesley recruiter, calling from a payphone somewhere in Maine or New England or wherever she is, and she's actually on vacation. And I'm dying. Because I really, I just don't want to do this, and I just don't want to cry. And I'm trying to be big about it, and I'm trying to keep the stiff upper lip, and it's just killing me. I say my thank yous, just like Mama said. And she asks me, she's like, but wait a minute, we've had so many conversations and I know that this is what you really want. And I'm like, I want it and need it more than I can ever say, but it's just not gonna happen. And then I start hearing the sounds on the phone, like buttons being pushed, like beep, 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 beep. And I thought we had a bad connection, but suddenly I hear an operator come on the phone and I hear that recruiter say, put me through to Wellesley College. Transfer, 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 transfer wind up talking to this woman named Mrs. McCurdy in the financial aid office. And I listened to them have this whole conversation that I like truly do not even understand with like all these acronyms like a FAFSA and an AGI and a FICO and I don't even know what the hell they're talking about. But at the end of it, she says to me, so you know dear, no promises, but we can keep working on this and you're welcome to have your mother actually come meet with me while you're doing different things during orientation. When will we be seeing you? And I was like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> now I got the whoa. Like, uh, 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 like I cannot commit to like any of this. This is all beyond me. So I go and I tell my parents what happened. <laughs> I started out by saying like, first of all, I need you to know I did exactly what you said. <laughs> I did not, <laughs> this was not me. <laughs> it just happened, swear to God. <laughs> but I need you to call this lady. <laughs> so they do. They have this discussion, and now it's just out there on the table. 
It's not certain, but what do you want to do? These are questions in my upbringing <laughs> that lead you back to your pastor's office. <laughs> so <laughs> it was me, my mom, and Rev sitting, having this conversation. And I'd known, and in the car ride, I knew that the most obvious question was going to come back to me. It was like, okay, why do you want it? Why do you want it? And, and I had in my mind, I had worked through all this. Like, I was going to talk about opportunity. I was going to talk about the importance of education. I was going to talk about all of these different things. And I had my speech, like, all prepared. And so when they turned and they looked at me and they asked me why this was so important to me, and it was my moment, and I choked totally whiffed it. I don't even know to this day, like I petered on and like, and I babbled something. At the end, I just remember sitting there and sighing and just like looking at Rev with all I had and all I could say was, it's mine, I just know. And he held my eyes for the longest time and he looked at my mother and just said, Bay, you gotta let her go. So we prayed. <laughs> And we left, and I spent the next 10 days frantically packing everything, like, on my way on a ring and a pair, like, to Wells of College. And to this day, my mother and I, we talk about that time, and we've coined our own phrase, and we call it a faith drill. Because really, like, what a faith drill is, is when you actually have no idea how it is that you're going to make your way, what it is you're going to do next, what that path is actually going to be, but you just keep marching because there's something in your spirit that just says there is something out there for me. College was a while ago, but from then to now, when I have those moments, there's a part of me that sits still and tries to like resurrect that fearless 17-year-old girl ready to like roll the dice and just go for it. And I listen hard to be able to hear her voice. I can just hear her saying, no matter what happens and what you're doing, whatever God has for you is yours alone and no one can take it away. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is the Bell Brigade behind me now, and we just heard from Rhea Spencer. Rhea sings in a R&B band that you can find at girlsontopnyc.com. And before that, we heard a very peculiar interstitial from our episode editor, Jeff Barr. I believe that was Piano Man, Billy Joel's Piano Man being sung in Hebrew over the sounds of ping pong balls going back and forth. Um, All right, let's see. I have a stamps.com ad to do now, my friends. These days, you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all of the amazing services of the post office right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer. And then the mail carrier picks it up. Just click, print, mail, you're done. Couldn't be easier. We've used stamps.com at risk and the story studio for like six or seven years now, and we love it. And right now, you can use Risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's Stamps.com. Enter Risk. Our final story today has a lot going on in it emotionally. Uh, Dylan Patrick told this story the last time that Risk was in Atlanta, and he had never told a true story on stage before, and he had only recently gone through this extraordinary experience. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out if he really did feel he was ready to share this. He was really taking a risk. So, without further ado, here he is now. This is Dylan Patrick with a story we call Mammoth. Alright, so I'm sitting on the forest floor at my campsite, just utterly zooming off of the heroic amounts of acid I've just eaten. (laughs) When up walks L, the most beautiful creature that the universe has ever created. She stumbles into my campsite and plops right down and She uh, immediately asked me, hey man, you got any acid? I guess she figured it was a safe bet, judging by the saucer shape my pupils had taken on at that point. And I say, why yes I do. And I reach my hand into my pocket and slowly pull out the sheet of high-powered blotter I have gently wrapped into tinfoil and 
begin to pull it out and ask her, well, how many would you like? Mel says, well, how many would you take? I say, well, I typically start with 10 myself. And she says, hmm, yeah, 10 will do. I said, holy shit, all right. Cut her off a 10 strip, she gobbles it down, and I say, oh my God, I think I've met my match. Maybe even my new best friend. So, needless to say, we are arm in arm and partners in crime for the rest of the weekend. We stumble around this psychedelic trance festival and trample every foot of this pristine 900-acre property outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and just have the most lovely weekend of our lives. So lovely that by Sunday afternoon, we find ourselves laying by this beautiful lakeside, about three to four feet apart from one another, just staring into one another's eyes, smiling and making silly faces and laughing and all the while falling deeper and deeper into love with one another as time goes on. We spend the rest of the afternoon like that, completely enraptured with one another. And I know that when this weekend ends, the two of us are meant to be something special, and this woman is going to play a major part in my life. After this weekend, for, oh, say the next year, I make as many trips up to Asheville as a underemployed college graduate in the midst of the Great Recession can possibly make. And as it turns out, uh, I had a lot of time for those trips. We'd go up and spend weeks on end together on dates. We'd hike the Blue Ridge Parkway and or we'd just lay in bed all weekend uh, binge-watching Battlestar Galactica. That was always one of Elle's favorites and became one of mine as well. On one of these trips, Elle and I, we head over to a mutual friend of ours, Kelly's house. On Kelly's front porch in the crisp autumn evening as the leaves begin to change in Asheville, it's a beautiful time of year to be up there. She looks up at me and she says, you know what, I would marry you. Without really giving it much thought, I look back and say, yeah, I would marry you as well. So she says, yeah, fuck it, let's get married. And that was that, we were going to get married. In a year's time, we would be married, but much sooner than that, she would move down to Atlanta and we would try to begin building a home together. 2011, we have the psychedelic wedding event of the decade. A hundred or so of our closest friends and family gathered together in the rolling green North Georgia mountains and we trip and we dance 
and we just have a lovely time under the stars all weekend long in lead up to a traditional Tibetan Buddhist wedding ceremony where the two of us are wed by a mutual dear friend of ours, Greeny. And you know what, Elle and I, we really never suffered the pitfalls that many newlyweds deal with, the petty squabbles about coffee cups and whose coffee cup is who's drinking out of and this and that. That wasn't a problem for us. There's something about marrying your best friend in the entire world that just makes life a whole hell of a lot easier. Mostly just shared our mutual interests and then of course we both had our own interests but those uh, slowly merged as well like I introduced L to Project Pat and L introduced me to Op Ivy and that's kind of how it went and then of course we had the interests we both shared one of the biggest ones was animals We would rescue every stray animal that came into our paths. We were, thank you, we were a couple of softies, and apparently we just had a mark stamped on our foreheads and somewhere above our front door because they just seemed to show up at our house. Countless dogs... And then to get into the interesting ones, a couple of tortoises, an adorable little baby bird we named Jeffrey, (laughs) and of course this itty-bitty little tiny piglet that we named Hogswald. (laughs) Yeah, he was super cute. You guys would have loved him. This would have gone on and this menagerie would have uh, grown continuously forever, forever, exponentially until our crazy Russian landlord who was something straight out of a Boris and Natasha cartoon. Yeah, until she kind of uh, found out and put the kibosh to the whole mini farm we had going on in our tiny little abode. But, you know, regardless, newlywed life, it really was amazing. It was full of Grateful Dead shows and dancing and trance and love and acid and all these wonderful things. And of the passions we shared, uh, one of the greatest ones was that of elephants, the African elephant in particular. Elle and I both shared a deep passion for the African elephant and trying to save it. Uh, We did everything we could, protests. That's right, we helped uh, with the getting those ringling, well, maybe I shouldn't say that. Anyway, that circus that shall not be named, we helped try to get them put out of business and get those elephants out of that circus. Yeah. And uh, there was something about the majestic beauty of this creature, its sensitivity, its never-ending memory, 
All of these things just appeal to both of our softer sides. So we actually often used to joke that of all the creatures that a household or a property could become infested by, the most adorable and silly thing a home could be infested with would be elephants. Like, it was sort of an inside joke. We'd think about an elephant hiding behind a shower curtain and, like, sticking its trunk out or maybe hiding under the bed and you'd hear it trumpet a little bit and I don't know, we'd joke about that one for hours. If you go ahead and jump forward a handful of years, L down in Atlanta managed to secure herself the job of her dreams, which was working at an animal, a veterinary clinic, working with animals, and she just absolutely adored this. Nothing but puppies and kittens and all sorts of injured and sickly animals that she got to nurse back to health all day long. This was the perfect job for her. And along with this perfect job came health insurance for the first time in 15, 20 years. So, yeah, she actually had that luxury, health insurance. Amazing, right? So she was able to seek psychiatric help for a debilitating PTSD she had dealt with since traumatic events from childhood and the doc was able to hook her up with some prescriptions that really helped her out Uh, you know one of which being an antidepressant there were several others but they really seemed to be helping and everything was basically as amazing as it could be in Elle's life and mine because I had my best friend by my side this entire time and she was happy and I was happy. So one Wednesday we both happened to have the day off and this very, very rarely happened that the two of us would have a day off. I was doing manual labor as always because that's what you do when you're an underemployed college graduate after the Great Recession. So I was doing manual labor and where I worked seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day, and Elle worked six days a week. And so the chance for us to have a day off together very rarely coincided. But on this particular day, it did, and we decided to make the most of it. So we went out, we went shopping, we saw a movie together, we went out to eat, had a very nice meal, made our way back home, we snuggled for the evening, we made love, we stared into each other's eyes and made silly tripping faces even if we weren't tripping because we just like to make ridiculous crazy faces at each other. And we stayed up until 3 a.m. knowing that we both had to be up in a matter of like two and a half hours. But we were having such a great time that it just, we couldn't bring ourselves to go to bed. We were so deeply, deeply in love that night that 
Couldn't do it. But when we did finally bring ourselves to go to bed around 3 a.m., I set my alarm for 5.30 so that I could wake up and run downstairs and fix Elle her favorite breakfast in bed. And I snuck back upstairs and served her her favorite breakfast in bed on a platter. And uh, she was very, very pleased with this. And we ate together and got ready for work and then I dropped her off at work I took her in she had to be in a little bit earlier than I she was to be off work at 7.30 and I was to be off uh, quite a bit earlier than that so I drop her off at work and say, yeah, I love you, beautiful, have a great day, love you most in all the world, the usual, and I go on to work. After work, my brother and I decide we're going to do some shopping, and the plan after the shopping is that my brother, Elle, and I are going to meet at my mother's house for supper that evening when Elle gets off work. Well, we, my brother and I, we do our shopping, and around 5.30, we, we decide to head back to Ellen and I's house so that I can get a shower and get some clean clothes and get changed before we go to supper. I pull up into the driveway, and I notice that all the lights are on inside the house, which is kind of odd because Elle's religious about turning off all the lights and I knew we had turned them all off so I figured huh she got off work early managed to get a ride home okay awesome so I go inside and I make my way into the kitchen turn the light off make my way down the hallway and I turn the lights off turn the lights off here and there and everywhere and I call out her name a couple of times but I assume she's had a long day so she's probably out cold in the bedroom so as I make my way into the bedroom I see her backpack sitting on the floor and then as I make my way around the corner There I see Elle, and she's hanging in our bedroom from those multicolored dog leashes, those cheap dog leashes that you get from a veterinary's clinic, and she's wearing her pale blue work scrubs still, and she's just hanging there. And panic sets in immediately. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm sure I scream, but I don't remember. I race to pull her down as quickly as possible. I pull her down to the ground, and my immediate thought is to slap her to wake her up. And I say, babe, wake the fuck up. You can't do this to me. You need to wake up. Wake up. And I get no response. So I start CPR. And I know that when I first touch her chest, I feel warmth. So I think, okay, there's a chance. She's still in there. She's still alive. But when I touch my lips to hers, they're ice cold. But then when I do the first compression, I I feel breath come out of her so I I know there's still a chance she's still in there I can bring her back I can save her 
I know I can, and I know my brother has heard me screaming at this point. He was still out in the truck, but he must have heard me screaming in panic, and he runs in, and thank goodness he's a trained EMT, and jumps in right away and takes over with the compressions, and I don't know which one of us called 911. I really don't. I can't remember. I just know that immediately were swarmed with cops and paramedics and firefighters and they're all over the place and I'm still trying to do CPR I'm still trying to get my wife breathing again but they pull me off of her and they drag me kicking and screaming across the house and they drag me out of the front yard and they toss me out into the yard and kind of circle around me so that I can't get up because I keep on trying to get back up and rush past them because I fucking know that I can save my wife if I get a chance to. If you just let me, I felt her breath. I know I can bring her back. And I'm trying with everything I have, but they won't, and they keep throwing me back onto the ground. I say, what's going on? Because I notice they're not working on her. And I say, what's going on, guys? Save her. Fucking save her. Do something. Her chest is still warm. Save her. And they tell me, no, I'm sorry, sir. Your wife is dead. She's gone. She's been gone for hours. That breath I felt was the last air that was stuck in her lungs escaping. I guess the death rattle. There was no warmth in her chest. I just wanted to believe there was. I spend the next two weeks in a state of total shock. I never returned to that house, to what was once Ellen I's home. I can't return to that house, and I don't. But I stay with my mother. I try to find answers. I dig through Elle's cell phone. I learned that she had lost that job that she adored so much that afternoon around lunchtime. But everything I learned, they're all small things. There's no explanations. She had lost jobs before I had lost jobs before. That's not something that you kill yourself over. That's not something you kill yourself over when you're married to your best friend in the world where we share everything and we have so many plans for the future. So I continue on just in a haze and I'm not sleeping. I don't eat. I wonder questions like, am I even still married? I, I know I'm still married, but am I still married? When do I take my ring off? I don't want to take my ring off. I still feel like I'm married. I had a wife. Just a couple of weeks ago, I still had a wife. And we were in love. 
So I don't sleep much. I don't sleep much at all. And when I do, I'm racked with horrendous nightmares where I relive the entire thing. The whole thing plays out in my mind over and over again. And it's like being punched in the gut every single time. I wake up in cold sweats and screaming. I average maybe an hour, an hour and a half of sleep a night. And one night, a few weeks into this, I lay down to watch mindless television, expecting the same sleepless night and horrifying nightmares. But this time, something's different. I fall into a deep and peaceful rest. I fall completely asleep for the first time since it happened. I had this surreal dream begin where I hear these heavy footsteps, this trampling and branches breaking and all kinds of crazy noise coming from my mother's backyard where I'm staying. And I run downstairs and run out the back door. I look out and I see, to my amazement, this massive herd of majestic African elephants trampling through the woods, making their way down to the backyard. And they walk all the way down, maybe 15 or 20 of these huge, beautiful animals. They walk all the way down, right up into her property, into the backyard, and I'm standing out in the backyard, toe-to-toe with them, just mere feet away. And they all sort of line up, and we stare into each other's eyes. And as I stare into those eyes, I know that I am staring into the same eyes that I stared into on the side of that lake all those years ago. I see nothing but love and compassion and understanding and friendship and beauty in those eyes. They're playful, joking eyes. And they just stare and smile back at me for oh, what feels like 15 minutes or more. And slowly the elephants begin to take over the backyard and they start pulling branches out of trees and tossing them around and just playing their silly elephant games. And I know as I'm looking at this that while my wife may not have sent, you know, left me a note. And trust me, there was nothing I wanted more than a note, some sort of communication from her, because this was so out of nowhere. I know finally that she has sent me a communication. She's the only person in the world who would know to send me an elephant infestation in my backyard. Thank you very much, guys. I was drawn to you I 
you were drawn to me And we lived that moment so honestly But directions change and the glory fades And we find ourselves going separate ways I wish you well on your way, on your way I wish you well on your way, on your way There's a humble thing, there's a truth that rings There's a wisdom people beside you bring Cause you did me kind, and you eased my mind And you found in me what I'd never find I wish you well on your way, on your way I wish you well on your way, on your way I wish you well on your way, on your way That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Brendan James behind me now. And we just heard from Dylan Patrick. Dylan felt that night after sharing the story that it was an incredibly cathartic experience to do. And I really hope that he still feels that way about the story now being on the podcast. Don't forget to keep getting the word out that the Risk book is out there in the world now. Give us your reviews on Amazon and other review sites. Ask your library to pick up a copy. If you have a book club, have the book club read it. Think of creative ways to get more and more people getting this book. You can share your picks on uh, social media with the hashtag RiskBook. And you can still find a lot of information at theriskbook.com. And now I'm going to read for you all of the places that we are coming to celebrate the release of the book, all of our book signing slash readings, and all of our risk shows that we're in the process of doing. I hope that in two days I will be as healthy as anything to get back into the touring mode. On July 26, we are in San Francisco at Book Passage. That's our next book reading, book signing at Book Passage, July 26, San Francisco. On July 27th, we're doing a live risk show at Swedish American Hall. On July 28th, we're going to do the Los Angeles version of our book release show. So we're going to have at least four of the people who are in the book reading stories from the book and that's just, and I'm going to be hosting that night for the first time ever in LA uh, that's July 28th at the Bootleg Theater the Risk Book Release Show on August 1st we're in Queens at Astoria Bookshop that of course is a book reading book signing August 1st at Astoria Bookshop in Queens on August 3rd, we are doing a risk show at the Magic Bag in Detroit. Uh, August 3rd, Magic Bag in Detroit. August 9th, we're in LaGrange, Illinois at Anderson's Bookshop. That's a book reading, book signing. August 9th in LaGrange at Anderson's Bookshop. August 10th, we're in Chicago at Lincoln Hall doing a risk show. 
Still taking pitches for that, by the way. August 10th in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. August 11th, Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. That's a whole new risk show in Minneapolis on August 11th. You can still pitch us for that too. August 16th, we're in Washington, D.C. at Kramer Books and Afterwards Cafe for a book signing book reading. Uh, on August 17th, we're in Baltimore, Baltimore, Maryland at Creative Alliance. You can still pitch us for that one. August 18th in Washington, D.C. And that's a full risk show at the Black Cat. August 18th, Washington, D.C. You can still pitch us for that. On September 6th, Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. That is a risk show. You can pitch us. September 7th, Seattle, Washington at the Vera Project. September 8th, Vancouver at the Biltmore Cafe. September 20th, NYU Bookstore. That is a book signing and book reading. So look for more information at risk-show.com slash tour whenever you want to know what's going on with our live shows or live appearances. Also look us up at thestorystudio.org for all of your storytelling education interests. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. People who have ordered Deborah's book. People who have ordered Deborah's book. There's Mike Morton and Amanda Tonison and Alexander Porter. There's Trent Hopkins and Chad Duncan. There's Sarah Miskoff and Charles Price. There's Emily Percival and Angie Tobin. There's Christina Schulte and Pepper Moon Boots McNasty, who is a dog who loves risk. There's Melissa Bryant and Una Velasquez and Bianca from Boston and Rebecca Bachman. There's Peter Sheeman or Shyman. There's Harry Halliday or Henry Halliday. There's Bob Smith and Bethany Bennett. There's Leon Price. There's Miroslava Berneva. There's Heather Curry. There's Jennifer Louise and Kevin Haddad. There's Will Tremble and Kevin Krajewski. There's Tom Gleason and Joshua Childers. There's Caitlin Gravel. Congrats on your wedding. There's David Gordon and Jasmine Velasquez. There's Valerie Skiro and April Corrin. Corrin. There's Andrew Hassel and Corey Bissell. There's Chris Dobransky and Philip Scheffel and Lee Sean Wong and Diana Kushner and Benjamin F. Carter. 
There's Vincent Chan and Roxanne from Fetsy and Gary Moore and Sarah Luger. the champagne ready the nba finals are here welcome to the nba finals let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss and to crowning our next champion here's a toast to the nba finals the 2024 nba finals presented by youtube tv continue on abc